Greg and um, the weekend planning team asked me to share my thoughts and a few words about the recent events that happened this past weekend. And as you all know, a lot happened, um, starting with Tuesday, where we found and heard uh, the verdict from our former officer, Derek Chauvin, the trial that happened um, in the murder of George Floyd. Um, who was found guilty on all counts. And uh, this to me is important and necessary to say because um, as a black man, hearing that verdict, I actually <laughs> had mixed emotions. I was somewhat, uh, somewhat excited to hear that jurors saw what the rest of us saw around the world of a murder of a black man by a police officer. And I think that it said to me that there is some type of monicum of hope that my life still matters and people see that and see it as such. We also had the funeral service for Dante Wright, who was an African-American male here in the state of Minnesota, a Brooklyn center, who was shot and killed by a white female police officer, um, which garnered a lot of national attention. There are a lot of other shootings that took place actually this last week. Um, some in Columbus, Ohio, others in North Carolina, Virginia, that also took um, center stage and national attention. And then there are others that we didn't even know about. And so when I listened to the verdict and I thought about all that was going on, the reason I had mixed emotions was because at one hand, um, I felt that justice and accountability was happening. And on the other hand, I saw that there is a very broken system. And within that broken system, there may be pockets of hope where people get it. But in general, there are too many times that we see injustice go um, ahead and not held accountable. We hear and we see um, injustice, excuse me, that's not held accountable. And so I was filled with mixed emotions. However, in the middle of this last week, I did some praying and one of the things that I was thinking about and the scripture that came to mind was Romans 12, one and two. And I wanna read it right quick for you. It's actually, I read the message translation. It says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to the culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants for you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God bringing the best out of you develops well-formed maturity in you. So out of those two verses, first of all, there's so much uh, to talk about, but there are two things that really jumped out to me. Number one, it is our responsibility as believers, as followers of Christ, 
to offer God our lives as a living sacrifice, the everydayness of our lives, everything that we are, everything that we do, how we navigate this earth, we offer that up to God as a living sacrifice, which to me is very powerful. And number two, we must resist conforming to this culture. When we say culture, I think of things such as if it's not going to benefit me, I don't get involved. If it doesn't dictate benefit or profit for me, I stay away. Um, I like to have my conveniences. I don't want to sacrifice. I want things to be as easy as possible, and I don't want any drama. And to me, I want you to really think about, is that the way of the kingdom? Is that what Jesus did in the word of God? And I would say no. He got involved in very tough, sticky situations. So I think this is an opportunity for the church to stand up and be the church in a way that we have not done before. To me, I think this is an opportunity for us that say that we have submitted our lives to Christ, that we are in a place where we have said to God, we are not our own anymore, that you are the ones that dictate what we do, how we do, what we say, and where we go. To me, this is an opportunity. And because this is an opportunity for the church to be the church, what do we do with this moment that we find ourselves in? How do we handle ourselves as the body of Christ, as believers, during this time where we are bombarded with police brutality, racial injustice, hate crimes all over? How do we center ourselves with a kingdom focus at this time. To me, I would say that there's almost a national epidemic on the shooting of black men. How do we handle that? What do we do? How can we respond to the cries of our black and brown brothers and sisters? Calling out, saying, we need help. This isn't fair. This isn't just. There are three things that I wanna leave with you very briefly. Number one, it is time now to act. It is time to get involved. Over the last year, I know here at Woodland Hills, we have been, as Greg said, roaring like a lion, talking about very tough situations, supporting you, me, and others to say, hey, this isn't right. What can we do as a body of believers to change what we say? How can we use our say-so here in this world? We must get involved. We must use our say-so now. If not now, then when? When will there ever be a time for you, me, and others to say that enough is enough? We need to do something about it. Number two, we need to understand that it may take a sacrifice and it may be inconvenience. As I said earlier, a lot of times we want our lives to be as convenient as possible. But again, is that the way of the kingdom? When you see your brother and sister hurting, when you hear the cries of your community members, are you saying, hey, that's not my problem? Are you saying that I don't have the experience to do anything? I'm in my own little world worrying about the situations of myself. What can I do? And I am saying, I believe that the way of the kingdom is to get involved. And it doesn't take huge monumental things to do. For me, I'll give you an example. I've, I've decided to get involved in things that I've done 
is gotten involved with a local nonprofit organization that aligns with my values to see changes in my community. I was able to volunteer on a task force um, that provided recommendations to our local officials around policing and public safety. I have used my voice in the spaces that I am in to talk about the shootings of black and brown people and the injustice that exists. And that is, those are just some things. For you, it may be a blog, speaking your voice out in tough situations with family members that may not see eye to eye with you. Understanding a different perspective, but also challenging those that are in your community. And this leads to my third point. We cannot do this without being a part of a community. I think that everything that is done within the kingdom takes a community. And with that, I believe that it is time for us that are not readily involved in a community to connect. For my white brothers and sisters, it may be connecting with brown brothers and sisters that you may not understand. Maybe it's understanding them more, understanding their struggle, understanding the situations that they're in that has led them to be where they are today. For my brown and black brothers and sisters, it could also be walking side by side with our white counterparts that may not completely get it. Whatever it is, it is time to act. We need to understand that this will be a sacrifice and potentially inconveniencing, and we can do this together in a community. Amen. So with that, I want to transition actually over into our offering, our time of worship and giving. It's because of you, it's because of your giving that we're able to truly be the kingdom and support efforts and what I was just talking about earlier. There's opportunities for you to give. Um, you can visit our app or go online at whchurch.org give. But whatever it is, I ask that you prayerfully consider giving so we can continue to spread the gospel and be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, here in our local community and also around the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you, God, for our opportunity to give you our everydayness of our lives. And Father, that you are able to make such beautiful things out of it. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for those that are giving at this time. I pray that your spirit, your peace, your love, your joy, your compassion, and your blessings be upon them. That you move those that are thinking or that are on the edge to understand the benefits that when we sow into what is important to you, that you will continue to strengthen us to do what you've called us to do. We thank you so much for this time. We thank you for this opportunity. And we pray your blessings upon everyone that is given. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hills. Really appreciate that word from, from uh, Cedric. 
You know, this is the second Sunday in a row that you've had two sermons for the price of one. You guys, you get it so good. We're so good to you, I just have to say. Uh, no, I, that, that, was, that was outstanding. Um, uh, Cedric is uh, on this, I mentioned this last week, he's part of this uh, civic engagement task force that we have going on. Uh, and it turns out he's got some experience on serving on a civic engagement task force. Uh, Shauna and Oshida are also part of this, and some others on staff and uh, volunteers are part of this uh, civic engagement task force. And it's a, it's a team we put in place um, to, uh, to help us ask the question, what needs to be put in place for us to, be, to have the maximal impact we can have as a church on our community, to be civically engaged, to be involved, as Seth Cedric was saying, uh, to be taking action on areas where we need to be taking action, standing for social justice and against racism and things of that sort. And you'll be hearing more from that team uh, in the future uh, as we are discussing these things and uh, really wrestling with some some tough stuff, but it's beautiful. I just appreciate it. So thanks, Cedric, for that word. You know, the the evening that uh, George Floyd's, uh, or that Chauvin's verdict was passed down, Tuesday evening, my wife and I were watching the local news, and there was a person who was interviewing these folks that were around the courthouse outside, uh, waiting for that verdict, and, and he was asking them, how, you know, what's their response to this, to this verdict? And, and across the board, people were saying things like, you know, crying because finally justice was done, and celebrating this, and some were saying, well, this was a victory, but man, we've got a long road to go, and, 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 and things of that sort. But then this reporter who was African-American came to this white guy, he was the only white guy that was interviewed, and asked how he responds to uh, this verdict. And the guy said, well, I think this is great, but uh, I don't know much about what I think of anything. Um, he says, this last year's rocked my world. That's the George Floyd murder happened. And he says, I can't, I, I'm having trouble getting my head around how we even got to this place. And he's saying that he's waking up to realize that he's got, all, as a white person, all sorts of privileges that other people don't have that he didn't know about. He's just kind of getting, he's waking up to all this. And the, uh, the America that he had imagined that he had lived in, it was not the America that he's discovering right now. He, he had assumed, as a lot of white folks do growing up, that, that you know, America is just a meritocracy. Everyone kind of gets what they deserve, and, 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 and it's just, and, and people get treated the same by the justice system and the police force and things of that sort. And now this person is seeing things a little bit differently. He's imagining a different kind of a world. He's telling himself a different story about the country that he lives in because of this event that's going on, and he's in process, and it's disorienting. I went through the same process in the early 90s. Um, it was Rodney King that, that really got me uh, looking at the world a little different, looking at America a little bit differently. Um, and, and it was a disorienting experience. Uh, this is why I think it's important, as Cedric said, that, that, that we do this as community, that we, it's so important that white folks develop relationships with, with, with black and brown folks that are meaningful, uh, so that they can get inside their world a little bit uh, and see the world from their perspective and, and, and hear about their experiences. Because you don't know how narrow your worldview is until you bump into other people's worldview. Right? We all have a myopic perspective, uh, but when we are, have relationships with people who are different from us uh, and have a different experience, well, it broadens us. It broadens us, and that needs to happen. The reality is we all live in a mental narrative, what, what some call a mental narrative. We all live in a story that we tell ourselves. We imagine the world to be a certain kind of way, and we assume that the way that we're imagining it is true. And maybe that the way that you imagine the world, or you imagine your country, the way you imagine yourself, the story you tell yourself, it may be that it's rooted in facts and is, in fact, pretty true. Or it could be that the story you tell yourself you just got from somebody who you trust, and this person's out to lunch. 
be careful what sources you trust to build the story that you're living in. So the story that we live in, the narrative, the things that we tell ourselves, the things that we imagine, this determines how we interpret events. It's, it's what gives meaning to events. It's, it determines how we respond to things. Uh, the story we tell ourselves determines what we notice and what we don't notice. This guy before had lived in a story where he just, it, the story wasn't conducive to having his eyes opened to injustice. Now he's telling himself a different story. Uh, the story we tell ourselves determines who we have compassion on and who we judge. Who we empathize with and who we don't empathize with. In fact, everything we do, we first imagine doing it. It's, it, it you could say that the, the external world that we have created for ourselves is the collective expression of all of our imaginations. The world is the way that we have imagined it. And so if you want to change the world, we've got to change the way we imagine the world. And if you want to change yourself, you've got to change the way you imagine yourself. The story we tell ourselves is very, very important. And for the most part, we're not even aware that we're doing it because it's part of our autopilot. We in the West tend to associate imagination with make-believe, with child's play, and that is extremely, extremely unfortunate because um, the truth is that imagination... The way we imagine ourselves in the world and God and everything else, um, it's the essence of who we are. It's the foundation of all that we do. It's, it's how we, it determines how we view the world in the present. It determines how we view the past. It determines how we view the future, how we anticipate the future. It's basically how we think. We think with imagination. If you're wondering if you should uh, clean the garage this afternoon, you wonder about that by previewing it in your head. You see yourself uh, cleaning the garage. And then you're deciding, do you want to do that or not? It's, it's just how we think. And as I've often taught around here, the imagination is the inner sanctum in the church tradition, the place where we encounter the living Lord. It brings us to reality. It doesn't run us from reality. If, if surrendered to the Holy Spirit and used in the right way, it brings us to the reality of Jesus Christ. We encounter him there. So while we tend to separate imagination from reality, uh, Jesus, we have been seeing, he identifies imagination as part of reality. And he considers the imagination or the inner world to be as important as the outer world. In fact, as I just said, it's because the outer world, what we do with our bodies in this objective realm here, is an expression of what's going on in our inner world, in our imagination. So we earlier saw Jesus apply this principle, and it's a radical principle. It's unprecedented teaching, I think, and, and I don't know anyone who's ever taught this. Uh, but it's powerful, <laughs> it is, and it's true. Um, he applied this earlier to murder. He said, it's not enough that you don't murder. Don't go feeling righteous because you never killed anybody. What's going on in your head? Do you look at them with a desire to murder them? Do you look at them with, with, with angry eyes? Uh, do you look down on them, calling them a fool? And he says, because if, if, if your inner world is, is doing that, well, that is ju as, that's just as serious as murdering them. He considers them to be on a par. Imagination, the world that you're imagining, is part of the reality. And he takes it just as seriously. Now we're going to see Jesus apply this to our favorite topic. And that is, of course, sex. The inner world is as important as the outer world. And I don't have my verses here. So I will read them off of the, uh, off of the screen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Lord, open our eyes to see the wisdom of this teaching and to apply it to our lives. Amen. Amen. And let me just say at the very start that I also, with Cedric, am looking forward to next week. Uh, finally, I get to preach a sermon where there's more than four people here. <laughs> now that will be a little different. We don't know how many people are going to end up showing up here initially, but, but it'll be more than four. So praise God for that. Looking forward to it. Okay. Uh, Five points here. The first couple are just really quick preliminary points. Number one, why does Jesus say whoever looks on a woman to lust after her commits adultery with her in his heart? And he doesn't mention anything about women lusting. Why is that? Obviously, it's because women don't lust. Only guys do that kind of thing, right? Women are just pure and holy, and, and, and guys are brutes. But no, that's not the reason. Last I checked, women are just as capable of lusting as men are in the right circumstances. In fact, Paul Eddy, my good covenant bro, who's our resident expert on sexuality, uh, he, he shared with me a study uh, that showed that uh, among 18 to 25-year-olds, um, women were more prone to be on porn sites than men. I knew that the rate of women involved in pornography is increasing. I didn't know it was it got to that point. So, so lock it in. Uh, women, uh, you, this passage applies to you just as much as it does to men. But so why does Jesus only talk about the men? And there's a number of cultural things going on there, but the main thing is this. Despite the fact that the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, portray men and women as equally in the image of God and being equal, despite that, in Jewish culture, it evolved in a very patriarchal way. And, uh, and you see this reflected throughout the Bible because God accommodates the cultures of the people that he's working with. Uh, but women are treated as, as less than. They are, in fact, uh, they are basically objects that are owned by men. Men are just regarded high up in the social strata, much higher. So more important. And so to th if you're thinking about humanity, well, men are considered to be the quintessential human, even though they wouldn't say that they're more human than women, but they're treated that way. And so if you want to make an illustration, a teaching that applies to everybody, you use the man as the example. And that shouldn't surprise us too much because up until very recently, we have done the same thing. In some ways, I think we still do it. Uh, this is one small step for man, the giant leap for mankind. You know, man is made in the image of God. Well, you mean to say humans are, but you just use the male as example. Why is that? And there is, I, I, I don't think language is innocuous. I think that, that there's a, a worldview packed into that. That's why I, you know, I grew up talking that way, because that's how everyone talked. Uh, but when I become aware of that, say gradually set aside that kind of language. And I'll tell you that I, I kind of bristle at it now when I hear it. When someone talks about man and mankind, it's like, let's try to be a little more inclusive than that. Anyways, so point number one, women, this applies to you as much as to men. Two, second point, lust is imagining a person in sexually inappropriate ways. And when I say inappropriate, I'm referring now to the, the, the biblical view of, uh, of sex. It's inappropriate from a biblical perspective, because it's outside the covenant of marriage. And it's inappropriate because in lusting after a person, you're violating their inherent worth. You've reduced them to an object of gratification. Among the ways you can know that lust is sinful is that you can't be ascribing unsurpassable worth to another person while at the same time using them as a sexual object. You can't do it. The two are antithetical. Love and lust are antithetical. You love a person by ascribing worth to them. You lust by taking worth away from them to gratify yourself. Uh, 
So, so it's something that we choose to do. It's not something that just happens to us. We choose to lust. That's different than temptation. Uh, temptation is when something comes at you and maybe catches you a little bit. There's a pull there. It's not a temptation if there isn't some kind of a pull there. But the question is, what do you do with that pull? Uh, you notice something attractive. That's, that's, in this world, that's just going to happen. Something attractive. You're fine of this or whatever. Um, or something even maybe stimulates you. There, there's a, a sexual image that pops into your mind, a sexual urge that all of a sudden arises. The, that's not yet sin. That is just being biological in this world. Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, but yet he didn't sin. So temptation is not sin. The question is, what do you do with it? Uh, do you, when you notice this, set that aside and thank God for the attractiveness and then ascribe unsurpassable worth to the person and go about your day having turned your mind to things that are appropriate to think about? Philippians 4.8, whatever's true, whatever's good, whatever wise, whatever's noble, whatever's beautiful, think on those things, which means if it's not true and noble and wise and all the rest, don't think on those things, and lusting is not thinking on those things. So turn your mind towards uh, Philippians 4.8 uh, kind of a thing when you, when you find yourself uh, being caught. But don't feel condemned for having felt that pull. That's just what it is to be tempted. And I share that because, especially for young people, uh, here, here, here's, here's one right out of the devil's playbook. You, you feel a pull... And then all of a sudden, you feel this condemnation. He jumps on your back. Look at you. You call yourself a Christian. Here you are. You, you, you notice that person. You, 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 if you're really holy, you wouldn't have even noticed that thing about that person. You wouldn't have felt that pull. And that's just a lie. It's just a lie. And then what happens is since the people think they've already lost the game, I've already failed, in some cases, they, they, they say, well, then I might as well just enjoy the moment while I'm down and repent later. And so they go on a sin binge. I'm talking from personal experience here, by the way. You go on a sin binge. Well, I've already blown it. I've already lost it. Uh, so... We always got resaved on Sunday nights, on our Sunday night service, so I thought, well, it's Wednesday, so I have five days of partying, and then I'll repent. Isn't that sick thinking? That's just, I'm, I'm, I'm twisted. I'm sure no one else ever had that happen. But uh, yeah, so, so don't fall for that. It's a con job. He shames you so that you end up, he shames you into doing the very thing that you resisted doing. It does it because he gets you, convinces you that you've already done it. It's a lie. Third point. When Jesus says, you know, if your hand offend you, cut it off and throw it away. And if your eye offend you, cut it off and throw it away. I hope it, it's, it goes without saying that he's speaking there hyperbolically. Uh, hyperbole is where you state something in an absurdly exaggerated way for emphasis. It's a way of saying this is really, really important. It's a matter of urgency. But you, you, you say it in a non-literal way. It really, uh, and, and you know that something is hyperbole uh, when it just doesn't make any sense to interpret it literally. So, for example, I mean, it, your hand's not the problem, and your eye's not the problem, and, and that's obvious. Uh, and it's especially obvious because the whole point of Jesus' teaching here is to show that it's not about what you do with your body, first and foremost, it's what's going on in your mind. And so you're not going to solve anything by cutting off your hand just because your hand did a sinful thing. Your hand does what you want it to do, and your eye sees what you want it to see. Or at least usually what you want to see. You choose to, to, to look at it in a certain way. And so it doesn't make any sense to say, bad hand, you naked, you wicked hand, you naughty eye, or you terrible penis. No, the problem is not there. Uh, it's, on, it's on the inside. So Jesus' point here is just to state emphatically how important it is that we are purging this sort of stuff from our lives. Cut it, throw it away, get rid of it. The sin's on the inside, not on the outside. So... Lust is about imagining a person in a sexually inappropriate way. And Jesus is saying here, 
you take that as seriously as you would actually being involved in an affair with them. Uh, consider those things equal. The one is simply expression of the other. And uh, I'd say the same thing about uh, the teaching, and this is my third point, the teaching about uh, that, that it, it, your, your whole body will be thrown into hell uh, if you don't cast this from you. This, this lustful thought. Somebody, somebody asked me the other day, or the other week, um, is it the case about this verse that, that a Christian who's dedicated to Jesus and really is trying sincerely to walk with Jesus, that when they have a lustful thought, they are in danger of going into hell? And whether you think most traditionally people thought hell is eternal conscious suffering, or others think it's just death, uh, it's, it's uh, going back to non-existence. But either way, is that true? And it, it, it seems, so, so imagine this, here's, here's Joe Schmo, Joe Schmo loves Jesus and, and has been really trying to live for Jesus, his life has surrendered to Jesus. Yeah, he struggles with lust now and then, but, but uh, uh, really a sincere guy, been walking with God for a number of years. But he's driving on the street and there's a billboard, you know, in America and a lot of other places, uh, we use sex to sell things. So we have a lot of scantily clothed billboards and advertisements and things of that sort, and it catches his eye. And that's just a biological thing, he's wired to notice that. But then, unfortunately, they say that Joe Schmo, he decides to indulge that, to wrap his imagination around that. That's where you cross the line now. And now, now you're involved in lust. So he's having a lustful fantasy. And let's suppose he's so into this lustful fantasy of his while he's driving that he's not paying close enough attention. He crashes his car and dies. Is Joe Schmo in hell? Because he, he died with a lustful thought, didn't have a chance to repent. Um, I don't think so. One thing is clear. Joe Schmo isn't being thrown into hell with his whole body. And that itself tells you that we're talking about a metaphor here. In fact, hell itself, the word is Gehenna. It refers to the valley outside of Jerusalem. And so it's a metaphorical thing. Uh, he's, he's speaking here in, 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 in metaphors. But more importantly, you always have to ask yourself when you have an interpretation of a verse, uh, does this interpretation square with the God who is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? Uh, and, and if your interpretation doesn't square with the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, it means you've got the wrong interpretation. Can you imagine Jesus? Here's a person, Joe Schmo loves Jesus, and yet when Joe Schmo dies and now meets Jesus, Jesus says to him, well, you know, I know I loved you and you loved me. I gave your life for me, and for the most part, you gave your life to me, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, I, I, I love you with an unsur you have unsurpassable worth, blah, blah, blah. But you did die with a lustful thought, so literally, go to hell. Uh, I, 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 what kind of parent would do that with their kid? Or what kind of spouse would treat their, their spouse that way? One, one wrong move and you're done? I mean, that's like cancel culture on steroids. I'm canceling you. You're gone. And I don't think God is into cancel culture. Uh, and look, so, so if, if you wouldn't do it with your kids, anytime that you find yourself uh, interpreting a passage where you come out looking better than God, you know you've got the wrong interpretation. <laughs> Okay, if you wouldn't do that, well, God's much more loving than you are, so we can't suppose that God would ever do that either. Um, here it's important to remember that, you know, the biblical concept of justice, to, to get at what Jesus is teaching here, the biblical concept of justice and of God's judgment, it's organic before it's judicial. They use judicial metaphors, like a court of law metaphor sometimes, but the basic concept of sin and punishment is organic in the Bible. Uh, punishment is a natural consequence of a particular activity. Um, if you keep on doing this activity, it results in, it's damaging and results in death. It's going on the road to Gehenna. 
place of, 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 of destruction. And God's role in the judgment, if God's playing any role in the judgment, is, is, is that God has to sometimes let people go that way. Uh, God, in his mercy, hangs on to us as much as he can. Don't go down that road. It, it, it has destructive consequences. I don't want you to go there. But if he finds that his mercy towards us just makes us more indulgent, it just gets us rooted deeper in our sin, well, then he's got no choice but to exercise tough love and to say, I got to let you go. I got to let you go. And so we, we find this in Romans 1 where Paul says, you know, here's, here's the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. And then he tells us what that looks like. In verse 24, he says, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Verse 26, God gave them over to their, their, their desires. Uh, these are people who were worshiping the creature, not the creator. And God, in his mercy, was trying to hang on to them. But there came a point where God says, I've got to let you go. And he does it with a grieving heart. But he's got to let them go. So, so I think what Jesus is teaching here is this. When we imagine having sex with somebody who's not our spouse, we're engaging in an activity that's moving away from God. Um, and since God is life, you're, moving, you're engaging in activity that leads towards death, towards destruction. You're engaging in an activity that is on the highway to hell, on the highway to Gehenna. God's love for you is still the same. You have a lustful thought. You're imagining this. God's love for you is still the same. His love, he is love. He doesn't have an off button on that love. And I, your identity in Christ is still the same. Everything he says about you is still true. And God in his mercy is still holding on to you. But see, that activity is breaking God's heart. And it's breaking God's heart because you're committing adultery. It's breaking God's heart because you're demeaning the worth of a person that you're supposed to be ascribing unsurpassable worth to. You're breaking God's heart because that activity is damaging you, your heart and your mind. And, and it's contrary to who you truly are. It breaks God's heart because God wants the best for you. And so while God in his mercy holds on to you, you may begin to experience the destructive consequences of that activity. In fact, you surely will begin to experience the consequences of the activity. And some of the damage being done is, you might know about and feel, but some of it, you, it happens without your awareness. So his teaching here is that we are to take, as being of the utmost urgency, to make sure that, to take our imagination as seriously as we take our bodily behavior. Which leads to my last point. Number five, why adultery? Why does Jesus say that when someone uh, is lusting after them, they're committing adultery in their heart? Because adultery is when you are unfaithful to your marriage vows. And you cheat on your spouse. So what about unmarried people? How can they commit adultery? Um, and I'm pretty sure Jesus intends to include young people since it's pretty common knowledge, even in the first century, that young people struggle with lust more than Older people. In fact, I'll tell you this. Uh, getting older doesn't have any upsides. It's basically, it's got one. You don't wrestle with the lust quite as much as you used to. Uh, you have that to look forward to. Everything else about aging sucks. But one positive thing. There you go. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so what about the younger people? Uh, they obviously struggle with, with lust as well. And there's a couple possibilities here. One is that possibly Jesus is simply using adultery because he considers it sort of the, the sexual sin par excellence. The, the supreme sexual sin, and he's using it to cover all the other possible sexual sins. Uh, and he knows his audience assumes that fornication, which is having sex before marriage, is just as wrong as having sex outside the covenant of marriage. So he could be using it in that broader sense. But whether that's true or not, I think this is certainly going on. And that is that Jesus is, is he's saying that it, it, you are breaking God's ideal for marriage, his plan for marriage, and his plan for sex, 
when you are imagining it as much as when you're engaged in it. It is adultery. You might even say that you're, you're, you're cheating on your future spouse when you have sex before marriage and outside of marriage. So God's ideal, at the beginning of creation, God's ideal was that sex would be, that every human would have sex with just one person, and that would be a person they're committed to for their entire life. That's what the marriage covenant's all about. In fact, in God's ideal, we're learning from this verse, you can find it in other verses as well, but in God's ideal, we would only be thinking about having sex with one person that we'd be committed to for our whole life in a marriage context. So it means, folks, that we, and the reason is because, see, biblically speaking, sex is a sign of the marriage covenant. It is, uh, every covenant has a sign, and, and it reinforces that covenant. And so it, having sex, when you give your body to another person, when you become one flesh with them, you really, that, that's the equivalent of saying, I do with your body. You said it verbally, I do. I'm giving you myself, and now we do it physically. And so it, it's the sign of the, the marriage covenant. That's why it's a big deal for God. Now, and, 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 and you break that ideal. In fact, we all broke that ideal the first time we ever lusted after a person. And we've been breaking God's ideal every time we've lusted ever since then. And from God's perspective, that is the same as committing adultery. Now, some have thought, well, maybe adultery is hyperbolic too. Maybe Jesus is saying, not literally you commit adultery when you think about it, but, you know, it's, 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 as, it's as if you were committing adultery. And, and, and maybe, so maybe that's hyperbolic. And since the rest of the passage is, uses a lot of hyperbole, it makes sense to suspect that maybe this is hy hyperbolic too. But I really believe that the adultery is not hyperbolic. Um, and the reason, basic reason is this. While you know, it's, it's obviously hyperbolic to say, pluck your eye out and throw it away and cut your hand off and throw it away. It's obvious because to take it literally is absurd. But there's nothing absurd about the idea that you are committing adultery in your heart when you lust after a person. In fact, I think it makes perfect sense that God would see it that way. God doesn't, doesn't, isn't interested in how things appear. God's interested in how things really are. And when we involve, when we engage in sex with our body, we're just expressing what's already been going on in our mind. You have to imagine adultery before you actually get involved in adultery. And imaginative activity, lock this in, this is going to reframe things for a lot of people right now. Imagining adultery is an activity that you do. It's a behavior. You're doing that behavior. This is why it's so unfortunate that we interpret imagination as make-believe, as fantasy. It's almost like we think in fantasy, uh, it, it's, because it's secret, no one knows about it, it's not a real thing. No, it's a real thing. It's a behavior that you're doing. So to imagine having sex outside of the covenant of marriage is already breaking God's ideal and qualifies as adultery. It's a behavior that you're doing. So whether you do it or not, whether you actually get involved in it, you've already broken God's ideal in your heart. The very fact that you imagine having sex with a person shows you that that's what you want to do. And it may be that you avoid it because of the consequences. Because having, having an actual affair is obviously worse than thinking about it in terms of social ramifications, in terms of personal ramifications and, and relational things. And it can screw up your life in ways that just thinking about it doesn't. Okay, so that, that, that's true. But it shows that that's what you want to do. And you maybe abstain because of the consequences. And that's smart for you to do. I encourage you to do that. That's smart. But it's not virtuous. Who you are, where your heart really is, is made manifest by what's going on in, in, in your head. And so it is, 
it is adultery. And notice this, that line of reasoning stands however you interpret Jesus using the word adultery in this passage. Maybe he is hyperbolic or maybe speaking literal, but it doesn't matter because you can see how, from God's perspective, it is the same thing. It qualifies as adultery. And right about now, I'm feeling, I'm sensing, uh, I'm actually hoping that all of us are feeling somewhat, some conviction right now. Now, maybe you're older and haven't had a lustful thought for quite a while, but think back a little ways. You probably had a lust, quite a number of them uh, when you were younger. If this is true, if we take this teaching seriously, it means that, I mean, some of us have committed adultery thousands and thousands of times. Um, I want us to just feel that, okay? I want us to feel that conviction, that take it seriously. And there's one to two percent of the population I've read that is, for all intents and purposes, non-sexual. So you don't, you don't struggle with lust. Good for you. But I wouldn't feel righteous if I were you, because this applies to every sin that we would ever do. <laughs> Have you ever thought about anything that is outside of God's will? It's the same as if you had done it. So if we take this seriously, we begin to see that there's no room for us to be self-righteous. Lock in that feeling of conviction. Um, because when we do that, we become immediately aware. If we get honest with what's really going on in our imaginations, we're so used to ignoring it that it may take some work to get in touch with it. But if you be really honest with what goes on in your head, you know how much you stand in need of God's mercy. And that's a good thing to never forget. It's lock in this feeling. And, and, and next time you are inclined to judge somebody for anything, sexual sin or whatever, remember this. Because to be aware that you are guilty of adultery hundreds or thousands of times, means you realize that you're not in a position to look down on anybody. You're not in a position to judge anybody. You'll, you'll never be inclined to cast the first stone if you stay aware of this. If we take this teaching seriously, we realize that we're never in a position to judge another. We realize that, that when, we, when we compare ourselves to God's ideal, God's true ideal, well, now you can begin to understand why the New Testament says some things that just sound so strange to modern ears. Uh, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says there's none that does righteousness. No, not one. Romans 3. How we're, the Bible says we're dead in our sin. We're helpless in our sin. We're lost. We're slaves to sin. All this negative stuff. We, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We're not that bad, are we? Well, who are you comparing yourself to? If you compare yourself to random Joe Schmo or whatever, maybe you can feel a little superior. But don't do that. No, the, the, the bar that we have to think about is, is God's ideal, and on that, we all fall short. Let's just say it. You know what, how we were supposed to be in God's ideal? Well, then you're part of the all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we take this seriously, we understand why in the kingdom, I, I, as I shared last week, we have to, we meet at the bottom, not on the top. We meet in our brokenness, our confessed brokenness, not in some claim to righteousness that we might have, or some claim to superiority. To enter the kingdom, we, we, it means we have to let go of all that judgment, let go of all claims of superiority. And we meet at the bottom in our brokenness. Set all that aside. With Paul, we're to be the people who confess. First Timothy 1.15. Here's a saying that's worthy for all to confess, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We're all to have that mindset. Not beating ourselves up and all that stuff, but just have that kind of humility. Because when you realize that you're the worst, you can only look up, you can't look down. Or, as I shared last week, uh, that speck and log principle. Whatever you think you see in someone else's eye, a little dust particle, uh, whatever fault, whatever sin, whatever shortcoming, consider that to be a little tiny dust particle 
compared to the planks coming out of your eye. Your own faults, your own shortcomings. Well, there's a million specks in a plank, so you're, consider your sin a million times worse than whatever you think you see in another person, regardless of what you see in another person. It keeps us humble, aware of God's mercy. And so the church, instead of being this holy club, we are the people who believe all the right things versus those people who believe the wrong things. And we're the ones who have, we, we do the minor sins versus those people who have the major sins. No, we have the opposite attitude of that. We maximize our own and we minimize theirs. And the church, instead of being a holy club, it should be a broken club. We're the club of broken people. And so if, if, you, if you're aware that you're broken, you're willing to confess that you're broken and start there, well, you're welcome here. <laughs> welcome to the broken club. And I don't care what variety your brokenness is. I don't care how the world might evaluate it. We're, there's no place, and I hope you can see this now, if we're taking this seriously, there's no place for playing that stupid, stupid game of whose brokenness is, is more broken than, than whose brokenness. You know, who, uh, your brokenness is worse than mine. Nonsense, get rid of it. We're broken, that's all you need to know. But see, God meets us in that brokenness, folks. This is, we're not just broken people, we're broken people who are loved. We're loved with the love that Jesus reveals on Calvary. A perfect, unsurpassable love. God, in all of our brokenness, in all of our adultery, all of our sexual sin, all of our violent sin, all of our apathy, it, all of it, despite that God in his love, he, he loves us with a perfect, everlasting love. And he's done everything possible to free us, to deliver us from that brokenness. So he meets us where we meet each other, at the bottom, and then he loves us and transforms us and compels us to go in a different direction. And now we're heading towards the top. And that's who we truly are. And we are learning to let go of those behaviors that are on the highway to hell. Uh, that it's not who we truly are. He loves us out of those until someday we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is, uh, for we shall be like him. Uh, that's the whole program, but we start at the bottom. Um, I, I want to close, or start to close by saying this. You know, Jesus, he said this about the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, Sadducees, those, those religious folks, those are the only ones he ever talked harsh about or talked harsh too. And I think it's because they were in serious shape and he's giving them a, a, a wake-up call. But he says of the Pharisees that they're hypocrites. And the word there just means a duality. There's a difference between the outside and the inside. In fact, Jesus says they're whited, they're whited tombstones. They're whitewashed tombstones. Oh, they look real polished, like a tombstone, nice and polished. But he says inside there's death. Uh, I think we all attempted to go in that direction. I am. My outside looks better than my inside. I expect it's probably true for you too. We care a lot about how things appear to the point where our default is that that's the only thing that's important. That's the only thing that's real. That's why we just dismiss fantasies as just, eh, whatever. Now, see, our imaginations can be very different from our external world because we're wise to not get involved in social ramifications. We, we're smart to not act out our fantasies, but we have them. Jesus' teaching here is, is that, that in the kingdom, we have to consider that inner world as, as being as real as this outer world. It's activity that we do. Both of them are equally activities that we involve in. And so it doesn't matter whether you're smart enough to abstain from actually acting out on it. The sin makes you, an, the thought makes you an adulterer, makes me an adulterer. And um, that, 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 what that means, folks, is that we have to become, as, we're, as God's loving us in the direction of Christ-likeness, we have to learn to become disciples of our imagination. Uh, to be aware of what we're imagining. And it's hard because it's our default. The story we tell ourselves, that, that's, that's our autopilot. Our job is to wake up to that and to take that seriously. And, to, and as, as, as Cedric said earlier, to, to make that part of our Romans 12, 1 and 2, our offering up to God. 
Because the goal is to not just have our behavior come in line with God's uh, reign, the reign of God, the dome of which God is king. We want our whole being to be under the dome of which God is king, including our imagination. And the Bible teaches us explicitly to do this. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Take every thought, every imagination, make it captive to Jesus Christ. So we've got, we've got to become disciples of our own brain. And that's a reframe for, our, for, for a lot of us. I encourage us to embark on that. And as a final word, I'll say this. Parents, I would encourage you to teach your kids this. And teach them this at a young age. With regard to, uh, to sexuality... Teacher, you know, between the ages of 10, usually, and 14, uh, kids start to go through puberty. They start to have the sexual feelings. They start to have sexual thoughts. They start to notice things. Uh, you know, they're changing. And um, I encourage you to, before that even starts, to be teaching them how to imagine sex in a monogamous way. So right from the get-go, imagine monogamy. Uh, imagine, they're going to be thinking about sex, and often that will be, let's say it out loud, reinforced by self-stimulation at some point. That's what kind of locks it in. You want that to be about a monogamous thing. And this is why porn is so, so damaging. It's attacking our kids' imaginations. Porn does the opposite. It doesn't associate sex with love or sex with respect or sex with decency. It's, no, it, it, it divorces those two things. And you don't want kids imagining that. You don't want us imagining that. And that's what it does. And so I encourage you parents put on protect those kids from what is, there's an assault going on, put things in place, monitor what's going on in their social media, but talk to them about what goes on in their imagination. And I encourage you to do that in other things as well, in prayer or whatever. If I had to do it over again, I'd, I would have talked a lot more with my kids about imagination than I actually did. So folks, be disciples of your imagination. Wake up to the reality of what's going on in your inner world and take that very, very seriously. And kids, or parents, teach your kids about the importance of imagination, particularly when it comes to the role of sex, and make it monogamous. Uh, I'll close with this. I have a book uh, I wrote with a guy named Al Larson. It's called Escaping the Matrix. And it's all about the use of imagination and how we can take authority over our imagination and, and uh, uh, use it in kingdom ways. And there's one chapter on pornography uh, if, if, if you struggle with that. Uh, another book I want to recommend is also by a guy named Boyd. His name is Jared Boyd. And it's called Imaginative Prayer. And this is for kids. Well, actually, it's for parents and, and teaching kids about imagination. And he doesn't deal with, with, with sex at all, but it, it, it is about teaching uh, how to bring imagination into your prayer life and in talking with God, and it's about teaching kids the importance of and the, the powerful role that imagination plays in their life. So there's two resources I, I encourage you to check out uh, if you want to go further with this. Uh, uh, don't forget, we have the MuseCast on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock. You might benefit from watching that. They go deeper in the sermon than we can go here. And I encourage you to check out our gathering groups, to talk with other folks, from, sometimes from around the world, uh, about what's been uh, discussed on the weekend. And if you are in need of prayer, maybe you struggle with, 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 with lust in a real strong way, uh, get prayer for that. But any other need that you have, uh, our, our prayer teams are open and available to you. So uh, just go to whchurch.org, Sunday slash prayer. God bless you guys. I look forward to seeing some of you in person next week. Really looking forward to it. Uh, stay tuned. God bless you guys. Love you.